This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live from the Underbelly Festival, South Bank. Please, welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. <laughs> See, this is better than being Prime Minister, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, <laughs> the old ones are the best. <laughs> I thought good whooping. Yeah, thank you. I mean, Ed, Ed tends to start these things by flattering the audience. Yes. But well, it's always good. Even taking that into account, that was good whooping. It was very good whooping. Yes, okay. Give yourself a big round of applause. Give yourself a big whoop for your whoop. Uh, so we, we tend to start these things by just checking how many people here are people who listen to the podcast? And how many people here have just come in the hope of getting a selfie with Ed? Not very many. <laughs> <laughs> because he will be waiting outside yeah, for selfies definitely. until Eagerly. every last person has had De one. Definitely. And then That's... he'll be haranguing people. Yeah, tourists, you, I'll be so asking on. you for one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we've been talking on the podcast recently about Ed's great contribution to, to fashion, which is one sleeve up and one sleeve down. <laughs> I'm going to model this now. Can you, can you talk me through the stylistic choice you, you make when you do this? I think it was sort of unconscious, actually. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's it's the new French tuck. They're going to be uh, including hoping. it on the next series of Queer Eye. Yeah. Um, as an indicative vote. How many people here think this is a good look? There we go. That's not bad. It's not bad at all. Uh, and, and one more indicative vote. This is from uh, Ed's, Ed's son, Samuel and Daniel. I said, "What what won't your dad allow you to do here tonight?" And uh, they said, "What what won't your dad let you do that you would like to do?" And they're sort of brainstorming between themselves and they're saying, well, "Xbox," but that's never going to happen. And and then they said, "Can you ask if we should be allowed to stay up till eight? I said, "Okay." And what would you do if you stayed up every night till till eight? And they said, "Watch a documentary." <laughs> How, how old are they? Eight, nine. I think that's good. But I think it that shows great, good, great, good yeah. parenting yeah. on. I mean, if they'd said old Labour Party conference videos, that would have been worse, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah. So, as an indicative vote, who thinks Ed should let his son stay up to late every night and watch a documentary? There we go. Wait till I tell Justine this, <laughs> that she's been outvoted. It's direct democracy. Um, I have a little bag here somewhere. I want to. Yeah. Uh, I want to delve this is into a prop. It, well, it's, it's actually the, uh, the subject for today's podcast. I'm going to hold this up. So this came up in conversation recently. It is an Alfonso mango. And it brings me a lot of joy. You can only have them for about five until weeks. I, every, until I intervened. It, it was my reason to be cheerful. And then, yes. then you ruined it by saying... That it was sort of... I didn't know whether it was climate-friendly, the Alfonso mango, because it comes from India, correct? It does, yeah. And you would seem pretty put out that I questioned the air miles of this Alfonso mango. I feel like you mango-shamed me. Yeah, I did slightly mango-shame you. Um, just just out of interest. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm not a driver myself, because, you know, I care about the... Do, do you have a car? I... Do. And, and do. just 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 out of interest, I mean, I, I think a lot about you the environment. You were ready for this, so weren't you? I'm not. I'm not a meat eater. I'm a vegetarian. I mean, do you, do you eat meat and fish ever? I occasionally eat you chicken. You do, so you contribute yeah, to the. Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. So. But, so, you, and how did you get here? Uh, I walked. You did not. <laughs> <laughs> I that, flew. That is what we call yeah. a lie. Says Air Miles Ed. Yeah, right, okay, fine. <laughs> we could go on like this all afternoon. So yeah. we're going to be talking about climate change and the climate emergency and what we should all be doing and whether we should be eating mangoes. But that's the sort of... 
I, I, the manga is important, I think, because it goes to this massive issue, which is how much is this about the action of the individual? How much is it about system change? So I did this interview with John Humphreys. He interrupted me 20 times. Somebody else <laughs> uh, counted in a five-minute interview, including at one point in the interview saying, let me finish my point, which is normally what the interviewee says rather than the interviewer. <laughs> uh, um, but the thing he kept saying was, how many airports are you going to close? You know, you're going to stop everyone doing this, stop everyone doing that. Now, there's got to be some sacrifice. But the question is, what's the balance between sacrifice, reward, behavior of individuals, your mangoes, etc.? And we've got a fantastic panel who we're going to introduce momentarily. And then uh, I'm delighted to say that we've got one of my favorite people, broadcaster and writer Emily Dean. So Emily hosts a brilliant podcast called uh, Walking the Dog, and she, she's written a, a fantastic memoir as well, which we'll talk about. So Emily is, is coming on. So shall we bring we up. will. So I'd like you to give an absolutely huge underbelly welcome to Emily Shuckbrett. And you can applaud them all, the three of them. There are three, so just prepare your applause. Uh, uh, Emily Shuckbrett, who's a scientist at the British Antarctic Survey and co-author of a ladybird book on climate change with Prince Charles. Fahana Yamin, climate expert, lawyer, and the political coordinator of Extinction Rebellion. And Chris Stark, the chief executive of the Climate Change Committee. Big applause, please. <laughs> We've uh, we got a good picture of you, Emily. Can we can we see the the picture, Emily? What's what's going on here then? Oh, that's proper Antarctic kit. That is, it gets cold down there. Wow, how long, how much time have you spent down there? Um, I've done two big research expeditions to the Antarctic and two up to the Arctic as well. And have you met Boaty McBoatface? <laughs> You've got some involvement we in Boaty. We use Boaty McBoatface, yes. You, you've Boaty, been on Boaty McBoatface. Boaty McBoatface got a new life as a, as a little um, submarine that goes underneath the ice sheets and takes measurements. So it lives on. Wow. And what did you do on Boaty McBoatface? No, you can't go on it. It's an autonomous little submarine. Oh, I see. Um, so we, we should start by asking you if you could tell the audience three facts about uh, climate change to, to convince their friends uh, that it's happening, the scale of the challenge, and what the danger of not acting would be. Mm. So, so uh, one thing that really strikes me is just how unprecedented our current atmosphere is. Carbon dioxide levels are now 415 parts per million. They've not been that throughout all of human history, prehistory and beyond. We're like completely... Just remind us how long that is, broadly speaking. So if you go to the British Museum in London, all this object comes from one and something or other million years ago. It's like a stone hand axe. So go back a million years before even that to find even vaguely equivalent levels of carbon dioxide compared to today. Um, so um, that's the first thing, totally unprecedented. And what would those metrics be, say, 100 years ago? So 100 years ago, the numbers were something like 280 parts per million. Right. Now at 415. So that's my first thing. Second thing is that climate change is already here and now. Um, so we're seeing extreme weather events around the world, including in this country where we've seen flooding events year after year in, in recent years, causing you know, huge damage both to homes and businesses. And do we know they're to do with climate change? So there are now, we're very careful analysis. Every time there's a big stream of weather event around the world, we do very careful analysis to ask. We can't say it's caused by climate change, but we can ask the question, has the risk of that occurring increased because of the climate change we've seen to date? There's now no, more than 200 studies showing that 
extreme weather events that have ha actually occurred, the risk has increased in some cases many, many, many times as a consequence of the climate change. We've already seen to date, so it's here and now already. That's my second key thing. And then my third key thing actually comes from the Antarctic. So my most of, my call, most of the work that we do as Antarctic scientists is done in the Antarctic summer because it's a bit nicer weather conditions in the summer than it is in the winter. And so most of my colleagues who were down this winter have just been coming back. And they have been looking in particular at a glacier called the Thwaites Glacier, which is critical to the stability of the West Antarctic ice sheet. And there's already evidence that that glacier is potentially an irreversible retreat, which would destabilise the entire West Antarctic ice sheet. That ice sheet, if it did disintegrate, would eventually lead to some three metres of sea level rise. Across the world. Across the world. So you just think where any of the big cities of the world are, or the growing megacities in Asia, they're pretty much all on the coast. Just imagine well, the, how even a fraction of that sea level rise, how much infrastructure would be destroyed, how many millions, hundreds of millions of people would be displaced, what the knock-on effects of that would be. I mean, it would just be devastating. Um, colleagues of mine that came back, um, they would say, you know, when they, it's a really remote part of Antarctica. We, we, we've not really been down there before because it's so difficult to get to. Um, and this is now... We're part of what we think is the largest ever research campaign to being conducted in Antarctica. It's a joint UK-US campaign going over five years. But my colleagues that came back, they said, this glacier, it just doesn't look like a normal glacier. It looks like a damaged, disintegrating glacier. Crumbs. Uh Chris, um, the, the climate change... Nobody says crumbs apart from you these days. It's, you, I, I, think, mean, yeah, I think that was a crumbs worthy... It was, it was definitely deserved to yeah. crumbs, but aside from Penfold in Danger Mouse, yeah, nobody yeah. ever really says it about That's true. Here. I'm sure he'd be saying crumbs in response to this definitely. too. Yeah. Uh, uh, Chris, the, the Climate Change Committee, you, you've called for the UK government to achieve net zero emissions by 2050. Can, can you explain to us what that would look like, what the transformation would mean for the country? Crumbs. Um, <laughs> so we published the thing that Ed's holding in his hand right now. Which That's just a summary. Summary, yeah, a, a summary of a very long document. So um, we looked at this question of how far can we go in the UK to cut emissions. It's really, really important that we do. Um, and basically what we've been doing for the last few months is looking at in each sector of the UK economy, what are the things that we can do to cut emissions and how much more can we do that than we thought we could 10 years ago when we created this thing, the Climate Change Act. Um, and the big lesson from this report is that we can do a lot more than we thought. Um, and in every sector of the economy, we can go further to cut emissions and cut these greenhouse gas emissions that are causing global warming. And how big is the transformation that we're talking about in your report? I mean, give us a picture of what it would mean for by 2050 for our, what, the, what Britain would look like. So it's, it's huge as a transition. This is a, we've never had anything at this kind of scale before. So you think about, I mean, some, just throw out some stats here. We've got 40 million cars and vehicles on our roads right now. All of them are not compatible with net zero at the moment. Um, there's about 30 million homes that presently burn fossil fuels. They all need to be decarbonized. Um, people are in jobs related very closely to the oil and gas sector, to the fossil fuel sectors. Everything needs to transition. We need to double the size of the electricity system. We need to quadruple the amount of electricity that we're generating without burning fossil fuels. This is a huge shift. But the key thing is we think we can do it now. So the, the recommendation we gave to government two weeks ago was that there is no excuse now 
to set, to not set rather, a, a net zero target. And uh, they need to get on and do that as quickly as possible. And they haven't yet, that's the key thing. We've only written a report. And now they need to adopt your recommendations. They do, yeah. Fahana, so we've sort of known each other for more, I'd say more than a decade. Um, at the conclusion of the um, uh, Copenhagen Climate Change Summit, which didn't go very well, I sort of remember talking to you uh, about what we were going to do. I remember you telling me that net zero was where we needed to aim for uh, five or six years ago. You've advised the small island states as part of the climate change negotiations, places like the Marshall Islands and others. You were instrumental in getting not just net zero on the agenda, but the idea of limiting warming to, more than, to no more than one and a half degrees into the Paris Agreement. But then a few months ago, you started to get involved with and became the political coordinator of Extinction Rebellion. Talk to us about your evolution of, of your thinking on this issue. Yeah, we met in 2008-2009. So I'm wearing a 1.5 degree badge and basically the small island countries um, I was negotiating with were wearing these badges in the 2009 Copenhagen conference. So we were wearing badges saying 1.5 to survive and one of the key issues which also was included in the Copenhagen conference, sorry, it's a long time ago, it's a decade ago, um, was the reference to 1.5 because the small islands and a hundred other vulnerable countries insisted that if the Copenhagen Accord, as it was then, this two-page document was going to say two degrees, it had to say 1.5 as a safer threshold. So even back then, uh, all of these countries were screaming and shouting about the existential threat to them, to their cultures, to their people, because they were experiencing it already um, and they were very, very concerned. And we basically have taken a, a decade to hear them. And I've joined Extinction Rebellion because, you know, they were a very active movement in sounding the alarm bell much more loudly and clearly. It's not that we weren't doing that before. You know, we were churning out report after report. The scientists were arguing, but I feel that the politicians and everyday citizens weren't really listening loud you, enough. So you had to sort of do something quite kind of crazy. And you glued yourself to the shell building. I think we've got a, a picture of you. Uh, that's you. We're glued to the pavement. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I was, I was one of more than a thousand people who were arrested over that 10-day period. So, so I feel very humble. Like, I haven't been charged yet because of the backlog, and I'm not sure, you know, what's going to happen. But there are huge numbers of people who were arrested. And I also want to say, why did I do it? It's because actually, you know, around the world, we are extracting nature and around four to seven people, environmental defenders are being murdered each week, each week. They're being murdered for defending forests, for in de defending indigenous lands, for defending biodiversity. So I, my own journey is very much as a lawyer, like the least I can do is, you know, speak my truth and that involved throwing myself at the building at Shell and being arrested for criminal damage. So I was led away in handcuffs for criminal damage to the Shell building. Shell has been one of the five big major oil companies that has funded climate disinformation. Um, there are legal cases going on um, to prove that. And it has continued to invent 
predominantly in fossil fuels to this day, only a small percentage of their investments go into renewables. So you see a lot of greenwashing ads for Shell, by the way, you know, green energy, all the rest of it. But actually, it's just a few percentage, it's under 5% of their investment. I think it's like three or something. So, you know, 99% of the investments of fossil fuel companies, of the big oil and gas majors, hundreds of billions of dollars of euros, of pounds, is still going into um, digging out stuff which is toxic for our health, uh, for the planet, for people. And that's why I felt like my utter frustration uh, with the legal processes. And, you know, it should be Shell who's accountable for criminal damage, not me. And now, Emily has set out the sort of scientific, the slightly, the very scary scientific um, sort of evidence, including from the Thwaites Glacier, Chris has talked about the, his report or the, the, the Climate Change Committee's report. I, mean, I suppose the question to all of you is, I hope the answer to this is yes, is can we do this? I mean, can we, we've said in Paris we need to try and limit warming to less than one and a half degrees. We've already got one degree of warming. Is it doable? What is doable? So I have a really simple answer to that. It has to be. Like we, <laughs> it, it would have been a lot easier to, to do this if we'd started 30 years ago when a, the science community first really raised this as being a key issue. But we can't not, we can't fail, right? You know, I've outlined the risks in terms of what the science is saying, the risks to the global, no, the whole of global society. Are those things reversible, the things that your scientists are seeing in the Antarctic? You can't hold back a collapsing Antarctic ice sheet. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. that's the sort of, you know, the worst extremes of sticking your finger in a hole in a dike, right? You're, there's no way you're going to hold that But you can still affect back. it by reducing emissions. If we reduce our emissions now, today, so at the moment our emissions are continuing to increase year on year globally. on year on year, globally, exactly. Um, if we ma actually manage to, you know, suddenly decide that we're actually going to globally address this that, and reverse that trend down in line with the sort of things that um, the Committee on Climate Change has been suggesting, um, then, you know, we've, we've got a hope of actually right. preventing these things from happening. So is 2050, is, is that soon enough? Is that not ambitious enough? So, the, I mean, we said 2050 because we looked at what could be achieved in every sector. So we, you might think of the task that we've just undertaken is looking at each sector and then turning the dial right up. So let's see how fast you can go. Um, we're going to disagree on the date. I'll tell you that now. But um, what we will agree on, I hope, is that the quicker we get at this, the better. So You'd like us to do it quicker of if course we could. Would. Of course I would. So the quicker that we do this, I would love to be wrong, basically. So the quicker that we go at this, the quicker we'll solve it. And the more that you front load the strategies to get emissions down, the more options you have in the future if some of them don't work. So it, it really matters that we, we, we go hard at this reduce emissions as quickly as possible. In the kind of world that we've just outlined in this report, which talks about 2050 net zero, you basically need to have everything going at full pelt in every sector by 2030. So think about the next decade as being the point when all those things need to, need to be put in place. So we get, we've, the government said they'll get petrol and diesel cars off the road in 2040. That's too late. It's far too late. Uh, it's they've, far too late. They've got to be going around house by house, street by street, street, by street. changing the way people heat their homes. Exactly. Correct? So it's those sorts of things. You think Change about, the way we use land. Even if it's 2050, think about a million homes a year being decarbonised. We don't have the skills to do that at the moment. So at the moment, we install about 20,000 heat pumps a year. There's a massive gap that needs to be filled, and we haven't got any time left to do it. So we need to, we, right now, we need to be, we need to be focusing on this right now. Every three months that passes is about one percent of the time to 2050. It gets harder and harder the longer you leave it. 
for Hannah. Yeah, the date and how we think about this. So we are at the point where actually our economic systems all over the world, whether you're left-wing or right-wing, are, are, are rubbish. They're not securing well-being. You know, we've had a Tory government for 30 years, a, a Labour government for 20 years out of the last 50 years, and all of them have contributed, all of their policies are based on extraction of nature and actually destruction of nature. They're all based on incremental changes. And what we now need, and Extinction Rebellion is very compelling in saying that and why I've joined, is let's not rely on the current market sort of mechanisms. Let's not leave it to me and you to decide whether to pull the dial down or to install solar and not solar. It's really hard investigating all of those by yourselves. Let's have, for example, an emergency energy efficiency act. Let's have a proper investment and train up, pretend that we were in an emergency and train up, you know, just as we were doctors and nurses and we ramp them up and we give incentives. Let's ramp up the training provision so we have thousands and thousands of jobs created to install the energy efficiency that we need. Let's Let's have an Energy Efficiency Act. You know, why not? Why can't we have an Energy Efficiency Act with money attached? When there's a true emergency, the Treasury finds the money. Let's have money attached and insulate those homes, do the 27 million to 30 million homes straight away. Why are we acting as if we can't do that? And it's because for the last three decades, and I was part of this uh, story, my, it's my own story, leaving it to markets, leaving it to consumers, leaving it to individuals, applauding the odd CEO who said nice things about climate, but then only delivered half of what they said. And let's do proper regulation, which is what you do in an emergency situation. You don't sit and say, oh, I might think about it. I might do it a little bit. I'll encourage so-and-so. I'll encourage someone else to do something. You use the tools and machinery of government, and we have not been used to doing that. And there's a you know, political agenda around that, but that's what we've got to do. We should talk then about the, the, the balance between the individual and changing the system. So listening to this today and feeling despair, what's the most valuable thing you can be doing? Is it protest? Is it making change? What's with the balance of those things? Stop buying the mangoes. No, I, I don't want to reduce this to triviality, but, but the reason I raised the mango is because, uh, well, because it makes Jeff feel bad. No, but because, but because it sort of it does go to this question about how much do we need to change our own behaviour? How much does government need to help us to change our own behaviour? What, what, what can people here do? I mean, that's, as you say, Farna, we don't want people to feel bad. Chris, why don't we start with you? What, 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 you must have thought about this as part of your report. Yeah, we thought a lot about it. So the first thing to say is that it is still mainly a, a, a big request of governments and corporates. And, and I might put this a different way. It's not really a request any longer, just as Emily says. This is now essential that they act. But that doesn't mean that individual actions don't matter, far from it. Um, I mean, individual actions matter because governments listen to voters, so there's the first thing to say. And the second thing is that this is really a cumulative issue, so the science is really clear on this, that these greenhouse gases, particularly carbon dioxide, once you put them up there, they don't come down very easily. So every kilogram of, of CO2 that we emit matters. So we make personal choices about those things too. And we, in the report, we explore some of this, actually. It's simple things like being conscious of what you consume, don't waste things, um, think about how you travel, think about how you live your life. These are th and there are actually very simple things that you can do about reducing your own carbon footprint. They do matter, but they definitely don't matter as much as big steps forward by government and big steps forward by multinationals. So you need both of these things working in unison if we're going to crack this problem. Farhana. Um, yeah, you the, the you must have thought about this individual... 
you yeah, know. a lot. And I, I guess, look, I'm, I'm now of the view that I also have to change my own lifestyle, you know, um, reduce my travel, especially leisure travel. Um, you know, I would want um, you to fly to the Antarctic and do the research that you do. There are some jobs that are essential and involved with that. But so this outfit I've had, you know, for five years now, I've, I wear it a lot when I do Paris-related things. I've gone on a complete fashion diet, decided I'm not going to buy any more clothes for at least a year. Let's see how it goes. And I think actually exercising some sacrifice and restraint in your life is really good. It's really good. But it doesn't take away the need for those massive changes. So my other big learning is please do what you can. You belong to a union. You have a bank account. You work, many of you. Go and protest. Go and ask your union where they stand on the major changes. Some of the very important things like the phase-out of diesel, energy efficiency, gas boilers being upgraded and replaced. Actually, you'll find that there are you know, blockages in, in the way in which unions feel about jobs, certain jobs being privileged and not others being privileged. Go and you know, start joining a group, whether it's Extinction Rebellion, whether it's some other group. You know, I'm a member, I'm a trustee of Greenpeace and also um, work with the WWF. So there's a, there's a, whatever level of engagement you feel comfortable with, whether it's being arrested or supporting someone who wants to be arrested or organizing some other protest, go and find that within you. But yeah. above all, you know, this has to be a change in the way in which we do politics. Our political system, I think, is broken. That is why I've joined Extinction Rebellion. I think we need sortition-based citizens' assemblies to guide the political process. I think politicians, year after year, have basically, in jurisdiction after jurisdiction, have kicked climate action down the line, saying they're afraid of voter backlash. So what you need is citizens in a formal deliberative process, a bit like a citizen jury, to understand what they would do in a real emergency situation. So that's the third demand that Extinction Rebellion has. And I think, you know, it could be easily incorporated. And when you have citizens actually deciding they are willing to, you know, forego travel, they're willing to forego meat, not just the 20% that's in your report, actually. Maybe they'll forego it 50%. Maybe they'll have an 80% reduction in meat. We don't have to second guess that. We can just ask them, what yeah. would you do and what would you be prepared to do to secure your own children's future and the future of the world? And I think citizens are far more able and take braver, more radical decisions than politicians are giving them credit for. So that's another thing that I would absolutely press you all to do. And there's also implicit in this, and maybe it needs to be more explicit, is a positive vision of society. I was very struck talking to Chris a few weeks ago and he said, and we were talking about meat. And he said, look, if you followed the Public Health England guidelines, people would eat 86% less beef than they do at the moment. 86%. That's right. Yeah. And then that would be transformational, transformational for what we could do with our land, forests. I mean, we used to think that getting to this you know, low carbon world was going to be difficult and was, there were yeah. penalties involved. I think increasingly we don't need to think in that way about it. A low carbon society is just a better society. So you think about, for example, air quality in cities, yeah, those definitely. sorts of things. There's all sorts of good evidence about the benefits of acting on emissions, which go way beyond, frankly, the impact on the climate. And it's those things often that matter most too. So we should just be doing these things because they're better all round. Good. Let's go to the audience. Um, you mentioned... What's your name? Sorry. Uh, my name's Helen. Hi, Helen. <clears throat> and I'm an Australian. I've been feeling I'm, very depressed about I'm the election. I'm really results. sorry. I'm glad we can cheer you up. <laughs> well, I do wonder what your reasons to be cheerful about the policy, the climate policy debate could be. 
the election result in Australia was fought in a large part over climate action and climate action lost, partly because inner city elites like us who already believe that climate action is essential were outvoted by people in more regional areas who are worried about their electricity prices or encouraged by the thought of jobs coming from a massive coal mine. What do we do in that situation? Good question. Okay, let's, let's, let's take another couple of questions and we'll come back to the panel on that. I think I saw another hand. Hello. Hello, I'm Emma. Hi. Um, climate denial, uh, like climate change denial is on the rise. So what can we do about that as well? How can we convince people that this is real when loads of people and far more people are starting to deny it and deny all the science? Great. Okay. And then one more. Yep. In, maroon yep. Maroon jumper. Very nice maroon jumper too. Thank you, Ed. What? What's your name? Guy. Hi. Uh, there seems to be a growing opinion that this is something much more fundamental about capitalism and that this is about that there is something fundamentally incompatible with a capitalist approach to solving climate change. And I wanted to know what you thought about uh, are you optimistic that we can have long-term solutions, not short-term, long-term solutions to this under capitalism or if there needs to be an even more major overhaul Okay. Emily, do you want to talk about denial? What's the best way to convince people on denial? You must do, they have to do this all the time. Yeah, and I've failed for 30 right. years. Well, I'm not like sure that. that's true. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but is, actually, is it on so the rise? I'm not sure it is on the rise. I'm really not sure that it, it, is, it is on the rise. And actually, to sort of link to some of the other questions, what makes me optimistic at the moment, one of the things that makes me optimistic is all the youth enthusiasm and all the school strikes and the, and the young people actually uh, really starting to raise their voices and say, you know, actually, this is something that we need to take seriously. This is our future. And uh, adults, you're failing us. Um, so if there's anything that's making me optimistic at the moment is that I always think that the combination of the hard scientific evidence with stories of people who are actually living the changes is incredibly powerful um, so when I've been up visiting the uh, so people don't live in the Antarctic so there's no one really apart from the scientists yeah. witnesses the, the changes there but when I visited the Arctic people live in the Arctic and they will tell you how much they've seen their landscape yeah. changing and how that's affected their yeah. personal lives and how perturbing that is and I think that's very powerful to hear those stories witnesses and in the Arctic particularly the Arctic sea ice has changed really dramatically um, it's now only two-thirds at the end of the melt season at the extent that it was at the end just of last century and that is a huge area it's the difference in area that's equivalent to the UK Ireland France Spain Italy and Germany all put together disappeared and Arctic sea ice is a super reflective surface so when that all that disappears you're left with much darker ocean that absorbs more of the um, heat from the sunlight and acts as a strong feedback effect and um, melting of the permafrost in the Arctic is also raises concerns as was mentioned in terms of methane release. Varna. Um, yeah just going to the question of yeah. capitalism actually because we haven't p picked up on that um, I think it definitely capitalism is broken completely but any new system that replaces it with the same extractive, you know, single-use, disposal, growth-at-all-stakes mentality is what's really caused the fundamental problem. And a lot of that has been shared across the left-right political divide for too long. So I think we have got a new understanding of the essential, you know, um, reasons for why we need nature. You know, it's not just a nice thing to have, it's because it provides us with food and water and clean air and you know essential services like flood defenses and so forth. So it's like we need to put that f 
very much centre stage, and I would really recommend, you know, Kate Rowe's Donut Economics. I read that in my, you know, um, nine hours in the police cell. Um, so I think that that's really important to understand that this isn't just the left wing, right wing. It's not all going to be solved by, you know, some kind of Green New Deal, unless that has in it heart and soul that we just fundamentally redesign our what the point of an economy is, and the point of an economy is to preserve well-being and nature um, hand in hand. I think just on this point of the political systems, what you're seeing now across the world is the fossil fuel industries with very deep pockets, yeah. absolutely yeah. taking yeah. center stage and controlling those. You saw it obviously most clearly with Trump, but you're seeing now vested interests, which we were meant to yeah. sort of reference, funding, denial, and and attacking people. So, you know, I found that in my small way, but Greta others have been seeing that it's less about now an attack on the science. They're just going for us. They're just going for us as people. You're hippies, you're middle class, you're elites, you're this, you're that, you know, you're autistic. That's what's actually happening. And the number of times I was attacked, you know, uh, pales into insignificance with what Greta and others are going through, actually. It's like they are viscerally attacking the people who are bringing you this. Chris? Yeah, I mean, on the on the, the, the political points, I mean, there are good arguments on either side of the spectrum. So left, there's good lefty arguments, there's good right arguments as well. We need to deploy them all. So, I mean, just to make those arguments, because I think it's they're, they're they're equally as strong, frankly, as as some of the as some of the you know the more kind of leftist ideology about how you might attack this. Fossil fuels are more expensive than the alternatives yeah, now, in a, in really a, to important. a large degree, and that means that onshore wind is the cheapest technology. Exactly. I mean, it's so, slightly, so, it's a kind of effective moratorium here, but it is the cheapest technology. Exactly, and just to extend it further, the market will really care if it starts to be exposed to some of the big risks that Emily was talking about. So, just think about the insurance market, for example. There are a whole set of things that won't be insurable in the future if we if we have the right time horizon. Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, is very concerned about that. There are a whole set of good reasons to, to, to address these issues, regardless of where you stand on the political spectrum. And the point is that the politicians at the moment have a choice to listen to them or not. And actually, they need to hear that these arguments, regardless of where you stand, stack up. So, you know, they, 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 there is no... There is no excuse now to act, to not act on these on these issues, regardless of your political views. And some of the big, some of the big shifts in the past have been led by... Uh, you know, right-thinking politicians. Uh, that's, that, so I, let, I, I, I think the most important thing for me is that this doesn't become something that is, is, is put in only one part of the political spectrum. The, 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 best, the best reforms come when you get that proper consensus across the political spectrum, as we did, for example, in 2008 with the Climate Change Act. So I, I hope that those arguments, regardless of your view, are, are, are as compelling as I think they are. Chris, do you want to say, if, if, if you were sort of in charge... I know you're sort of an independent civil servant and all that. Uh, but if you were in charge as, what, what, what are they ministers for climate change or ministers with total power or what, what do you want? We'll say ministers for climate change. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. You, you're the one with total power, is that right? You, you're determined to keep yeah. the total power. Yeah, yeah. Right, and, okay. And, and I promise within that, with, with great power Light comes touch. great responsibility, I will cut down on my mango consumption. Right, okay, good. But that being said... Yeah, I'm, I'm giving you carte blanche here. So a benevolent climate dictator. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, the, 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 there are so many things I could pull out as things that you should do immediately. The first is the very easy thing is let's bring forward that crazy date of 2040 for the switchover from fossil fuel vehicles on our roads because it's an easy thing to do. And we think, and in fact, if we think overall it's cheaper for there to be a right. you know, decarbonised transport system um, on our roads. The one I would go at big time is what to do with housing. 
Um, it's 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 often carbon army. The, the carbon army. So you need a, you need you need in every town and village and yeah. city in this whole in this country trained people who are making people warmer and less drafty in their yeah. homes. What an awful awful outcome. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. And uh, you know decarbonising it for them. This is something we can do. We've done these sorts of things before, but you need to step in big. So and it takes time to get to gear up to do something like that. So if I could act now, that's the thing I would start. I would start the engine on that. You know, pan UK, massive effort, new jobs, all the good stuff that comes with it. Um, that's the thing. And then I think that's, the, for me, the test of whether we're being serious about climate change in this country is if we can get that started. Emily? So absolutely, all the sort of implementation side of things that Chris has outlined, critically important. But I think the other thing that's critically important, and we have spoken a little bit about it today, is this idea of creating an optimistic vision of the future. And I think part of delivering that optimistic vision of the future is also to support with the research and development around the and, and, and foster the innovations that are going to be required to help us get through the coming decades as well. So I would say yes on the implementation, but also... Let's make sure we support and encourage innovation, research and development. For Hannah, final word? Well, yeah, no, no Ministry of Climate Change can solve this problem because what we found is um, ministries of environment and climate change are too weak and they don't regulate the treasury, they don't regulate transport, they don't regulate agriculture, they don't regulate energy. They so do in the I Jeff would Ocracy. like to be... Thank you, thanks for the upgrade. Yeah. So I would prefer to be Prime Minister... Thank right. you. And to have you I just launched convince. a coup against yeah. Jeff? I think I'm quite on the side of your coup. I'm afraid yeah. I'm sort of. I'm afraid yeah. Judas. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. I'm afraid we've taken over the television station, and Fahana's about to go on air and declare yeah. and declare that you've yeah. been toppled. Actually, I'm going to do a State of the Union message. At yeah, that yeah, now, yeah. And I would like uh, all of you to understand that we're now in a climate and ecological crisis, and that Cobra, you know, the meeting of the cabinet intergovernmental machinery will be meeting on a monthly basis from now on. And we'd like to also set up citizens assemblies in every city, in every town, and for every department to make sure that citizens' voices are heard and that you understand why we would take the emergency measures that are needed. And we will all be on this journey together. Thank you. And a Very good. I mean, <laughs> what, what can, what can I say? I mean, the, the, the Jeff Ocracy was good while it lasted. But all, I mean, all I'm saying is those Cobra meetings will be fortnightly all, under my administration, all, all, not I monthly. Mean, all empires so. come to an end. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, it just leaves me to say to Chris, to Fahana, to Emily, thank you so much. Uh, I think you have given us grounds for fear, but also grounds for optimism. Big round of applause, please, ladies and gentlemen. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Milibans and Jeff Lloyd. Should we get Emily Dean yes, on? Please yes. welcome Emily Dean and special guest. <laughs> Emily's here with some ideas which, uh, which uh, could, could be reasons for cheerful if implemented. And you brought a special guest. Tell us who this is and why you brought them. So this is Raymond. Hi, everyone, by the way. I should say, but there's one man saying hello. Um, hello. It's because the atmosphere is now awkward after the whole Jeffocracy coup thing. <laughs> well, you, you know, would be a loyalist, right, Emily? Well, do you know what I felt, though? Yes. Um, what I felt when I walked in, I'm going to tell you what happened before I came here today, before I came on stage. I went backstage, as they call it, tiny little office that looks like it's a construction site or something. I mean, it's a shipping container back Don't, yeah, don't, don't let too much light in on the magic. <laughs> and... Ed and Jeff are there. I thought, oh, there's Ed and Jeff. And all the posh people, as I call them, are there. <laughs> and I felt, I walked in with fluffy slippers and a shih tzu and a T-shirt saying, future stay-at-home dog mom. 
and I felt a bit like Jeff had all these new cool friends at his new school, <laughs> and I was the embarrassing one from Definitely home who came in no, and went, "Hiya!" I told you to keep the sleep slippers on. For okay, stage. all right. I just feel like I feel like the this is question is... time, and I'm H from Steps. The, the, uh, <laughs> the, 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 that went right over my head, actually. Uh, 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 Gordon Je- Brown, Je- Ed's Je- 90s. Je- He's Je- got no memories of Je- the 90s. Jeff will explain. Oh, Steps, they're a pop band, aren't they? Well done. Uh, uh, oh. This is going to be a long uh, afternoon. Yeah. I met your sons, by the way. Oh, yeah. They're lovely. Hello, Thank boys. <laughs> How are they feeling about the, the newfound permission to stay up till eight o'clock watching documentaries? Well... Uh, you, you're getting a dog, by the way. Really? No, yeah. I, no this is interesting. This is interesting. I've been resisting for you this You have for a told long... me that you would like a dog, but the boys didn't want a dog, which is usually... That's a lie. Thing. Yeah. I've literally just asked them. Yeah. They even specified a breed. What kind of breed? Pomeranian. Wow. They said the big ginger fluffy one. I don't think they meant Boris Johnson. <laughs> right. <laughs> And which one Should we you... just do a quick indicative vote? Oh, Should no. Ed's sons be allowed a dog? Yes! <laughs> Got to respect the result, Ed. But don't you think... What, will the, <laughs> the will, people have spoken. Will the, dog, will the dog sort of be unhappy, you know, if, if, there is sort of, if it's at home during the day and there's nobody there? Is and... your friend all right? <laughs> uh, well, what's that? It's... Second referendum. <laughs> Second referendum. Uh, yeah, exactly. I did ask Revoked. the boys, and they said, "No, my dad says that we don't have time." Yeah, but that... you, would you have thought of yourself as somebody who, who who didn't have time? Well, of course. I mean, you know what I was like, Jeff. I was that person who got on the party train and stayed on my. St- you know, did, never got off. Never no, got off on the stop. I just stayed like on. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Labour Party oh, so we're train. We're so similar, <laughs> honestly. You're the sort we're of so per- similar, yeah. Well, we are because <laughs> the we both grew train. up in North London, I yeah, think. Yeah, exactly. We both like partied <laughs> till we, you know, couldn't party anymore. <laughs> partied, partied like it was 1997. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you were an S Club fan. Was, yeah, was, was Gordon Brown at your parties or as well or not? <laughs> they were different parties. Right, oh, I see, yeah they, want, yeah. they went on a bit later. Right, I see. But no, you're the Well, kind like after of- nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Wow, oh, he's really sweet, yeah. isn't he? Nice, isn't he? Yeah. You're the kind of boy growing up in North London yeah. that my parents would have said, oh, he's lovely. Why didn't Aww. you go out with him? And why didn't you? Because I'd say, oh, he doesn't know any cool bands. Yeah, that's and true. He knows Aha. Yeah, he does. Yeah, yeah. it's true. He, it's d- he didn't know Steps, though. Just but about Steps. Yeah, so I ended up getting a dog, essentially... There's going to be a heavy bit. I'm sorry about this. But, you know, I think we should talk about heavy things. And... Um, I essentially had not grown up in a dog family. I grew up in an atmosphere of bohemian chaos, I always call it. And it was a North London, I guess you'd call it a kind of literary bohemian family, the kind of families you probably knew, where you'd have loads of books on the shelves, but you didn't get breakfast often. And my parents would say, they were kind of crazy, my parents. My father was an arts reporter for the BBC. He was the first man on colour TV. No one was watching. Um, and my mum was an actress. He wasn't one of the black and white minstrels, was he? I thought that was the first thing they showed on colour TV. <laughs> no, it was a show called Late Night Lineup. My dad used to present. Oh, Late with... Night Lineup, yeah. yeah. Oh. 
Now he Joan, likes me. Now he likes me. Come on, me. Tell us. Joan Bakewell uh, yes. used to be uh, present. Well, she or she was a guest. Yeah, on Yeah, she Night was Lineup. a co-presenter with my dad. Yeah. Oh wow! How amazing! Oh, now I'm going to get an invite yeah, round. Yeah, yeah, definitely. To the posh people's Late house. Late night lineup. Yeah. So my dad presented that, and he would interview all these incredible people, a lot of politicians as well. Yeah. So he'd say, we'd be sitting there, and he'd say, a, a friend's coming round tonight. You have to talk to him. And this man would say, I'm Michael Foot, and I'd say, What do you do? Yeah. So we had all these. He was a politician. Yeah. Uh, he was, uh, uh, yeah. He um, Labour Party leader. Yep. Yeah, he uh, got the job. Yeah, yeah. and then he, um, yeah. yeah, but he didn't get. He the lost job. an election too, actually. Yeah, yeah. no. I, know. Uh, <laughs> uh, um. I love the way Ed moves on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so, <laughs> so. Just doing a bit of sort of background. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, so it was kind of one of those. Those sort of childhoods, and I don't know if anyone here had a childhood like that, but you think, God, wouldn't it be fascinating to watch this childhood? I just don't know if I want to be in it. <laughs> um, because it was, you know, you'd have these extraordinary conversations long into the night about politics and arts, but you didn't get breakfast. You had the, the leftovers from the dinner party canapes. So I used to have, have like blinis on the way to school. And, and my mother, you'd say something like, they were very eccentric. So I remember saying, why is Granny being horrible to me? And my mother said, I was about six. My mother said... I've told you why, it's because she's on amphetamines, darling. <laughs> so that was my sort Gee, of was that like your house? Not exactly, no. <laughs> That's how we part of company. But yeah. it did mean because I always craved that stability that I saw in all these yeah. other families where you had a Labrador and Tupperware and a, a yeah. normal. I know to me that's, you know, I don't want diamonds, I want Tupperware. Yeah. Um, and I never had that. So, because I grew up with sort of weird artists, but yeah. I, and, and I continued, I sort of continued not having that throughout my life. My sister, who was sort of my lighthouse in a way, my docking point throughout all this chaos, she did do that. She had the pharaoh and ball door and she had, don't like that you don't know what that is. I bet you both got one. Um, she, you know, Watch the paint, paint. Right, paint okay. that the people put on your door. Right. And um, she had the husband and the two kids and the puppy called Mr. Giggle. And then... You know, she had this blissful existence and, and then she, this awful thing happened where she got diagnosed with cancer very suddenly where we were literally in the change room at Topshop and she was going, oh, I can't shift this baby weight she had a 10-month-old and a 10-year-old. And then it was only not that long afterwards we realised it wasn't baby weight. It was her abdomen was swollen because the cancer had metastasized, and she just didn't know. It was so strange that you can live your life. I remember she was doing karaoke a few weeks before and she died within sort of three or four weeks of that. Oh my God. Which was horrific, especially as she had two kids. And so that absolutely knocked me for six. I'm going to hand you Ray. Do you want to go? You can have them on your knee. Um, and yeah, I was just sort of reeling from it. And then both my parents died really. I'm, it gets happier, I promise. Um, shortly after that, my mum got motor neurone disease and dealt with it in, a, in her very characteristically camp theatrical way, you know. And she was like, oh, darling, maybe we should have a mini break in Switzerland. You can bump me off. And so, you know, that was her coping mechanism. And I know, I'm glad you laughed. <laughs> it was quite funny. But some people get a bit funny and go, oh, no, she's joking about death. Get me out of here. Um, and my dad died from a stroke six months after that. So I suddenly, I always said, I felt, it felt a bit like the Game of Thrones episode where they kill all the characters off just to shock you. And... Yeah, all of us will cope with death, you know. Um, but that just felt, you get the sense that there's a rational showrunner overseeing your narrative. And they think, oh, we'll eke out the tragedy. We wouldn't be complete monsters. We'll give them maybe a bad episode here, another one there. But 
Mine decided not to do that, and they went for a big old season finale and mass carnage, really. And that's a tough kind of grief. So a very long and roundabout way of telling you that I just sort of changed my life, and grief like that changes you. And I decided that um, this list I had called things I always talk about doing but never actually do, on that list was getting a dog. And that's when I got Raymond. And he's utterly changed my life and helped me in so many ways. What's the number one way he's helped you? Do you know, I think... It's going well, boys, by the way. I think we're going to get the dog. And (laughs) I... (laughs) I made all of that up. No, I didn't. Imagine if you, you suddenly saw me with this bloody dog having to walk it, and there I am with my whole family. Say exactly. hi. <laughs> um, do you know how it's changed me, Ed? Is I think I honestly think it's made me slightly kinder as a person. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it has. You know, because I think what it does is it softens out, particularly as a Londoner and growing up in a sort of urban slightly cynical you know environment and everything's very brittle and cool and I just sort of think it forces me to walk which is why I think all MPs should own dogs because I think that's where you connect with people and you get chatting in that way where you have real conversations with people where there's no status or agenda it's just a talk with another dog owner but I I do stop people with dogs actually and say that's a nice dog Do you say anything else? Because that sounds a bit weird. (laughs) I've always wondered why they look at me in a funny way when I say that. I say, what a nice dog. People quite like it, actually. Yeah, Yeah. we do. Going for a walk with Ed is a bit like going for a walk with a dog because everybody (laughs) wants to stop and talk to you (laughs) and stroke his hair, have a little picture with him. And you enjoy they're that. Ju- they're just the people I've laid on, I've arranged to make myself feel better. (laughs) Um, So, yeah. yeah, I think it's definitely... I mean, it's proven i think with dogs that's why people have do you want to go this is going so well what if it all goes ed miliband is stroking my shih tzu what what (laughs) (laughs) he looks a little awkward everybody loves everybody loves raymond uh you know i got do you know do you know the program everybody loves raymond yes i do i once got mistaken for ray romano (laughs) seriously on an airplane it was it was (laughs) I didn't think I'd lost the election by that. It was shortly before being mistaken for Nick Clegg on the aer- on a different aeroplane. Not that I fly too much. But uh, uh, <laughs> Emily, you, uh, you've written a, a wonderful memoir about this, which I, I, I recommend. Every, everybody should go and buy it. It's just wonderful writing. Nice. And, uh, and also, it's changed your life because you have a podcast, Walking the Dog, where you take people for, for, for walks with Raymond or their dog. Yes. Um, oh, can I come for a walk with you on your podcast? We've been trying to get you to do this for ages. I don't remember that. Uh. <laughs> right, politicians are. Such uh. a politician. Yeah. Look, let uh. me be absolutely clear on yeah, this. Exactly. I'm really glad you asked me that question. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then I try and call him afterwards. Oh, the dog walk. Hello. Yeah, yeah. And, and you brought along some ideas with you today. So yes. So rattle through those quickly. I have three. My first is that there should be on-the-spot fines introduced for anybody who asks a child-free woman, when is she going to have children? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. 
I'm not an unreasonable woman. I am. <laughs> but that's not the point. So there is a get out of the fine. Yeah. And how you get out of the fine is that if you have children, you have to give Donate your children. No. 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 <laughs> Well, that could be her idea. Yeah. You have to give a detailed and thorough justification and explanation for why you decided to take the momentous decision to bring a human existence into being. Because to me, my point there is not that I think it's wonderful if people have children, but you've made an active decision to do something. I haven't. And yet I'm being interrogated. So it's a bit like me saying to you, Ed, why have you never got a Doberman Pinscher? I just think it's so sad that you'll never know what it's like to have owned a Doberman Pinscher. Or I would say to Jeff, why have you never dyed your hair aubergine? I mean, I just think it's sad to go through life not knowing. You could have looked amazing with aubergine hair. So I just want that fairness. How to be big restored. is the fine? I, I'm with you on this, yeah. by the way. How big is Are the you? Fine? Yeah. Well, what does everyone think? Yeah, yeah. 20 pounds? No, higher, no. lower, higher. Higher. Lower, higher. higher. Do you know, I've fallen in love with the man in the front who said higher. Definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, what are we going to go, 50? 100 At least quid. 100. What's that in Cockney rhyming slang? Is Danny Dyer here? I don't know what that is. Um, 100 quid, okay. That's fair enough. And you donate yeah. it to Friends of the Earth. But I think for a second, what's second offence? Second offence, I haven't looking, thought it being through a bit that much. I'm the not the Metropolitan Police right. Commissioner. <laughs> well, let's go on to your second idea. I think we're okay. getting He's getting bogged down in the, in the legislation. <laughs> okay, okay, I'm just like going through the policy analysis, you know, I mean... <laughs> Poor yeah, Justine. I'm just a bit this nerdy. is a night in for Justine. Yeah. <laughs> no, darling, I just want to go through that legislation yeah, again. Yeah, exactly. Um, you, I kid you not, I mean, that is actually... Is that what yeah, happens? Yeah, basically. <laughs> the well, second thing. Yes. Um, I think... And it won't surprise you to hear that I have a slight dog canine bias. I think dogs should be compulsory in the workplace. I really like this. Oh, I tell you, it would help in the House of Commons. Honestly, I think it Brexit would. would have been much easier. Yes. I, I really, definitely. I think that, but I don't think this, this is scientifically proven again that dogs, you know, they lower stress, don't they? Oxytonin. And, Oxytocin. Yeah. Oxytocin. Oxytocin. He, he never sorry. went to a rave. Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> no shit, Sherlock. Uh, uh, Set you up like yeah, you Peter did. Beardsley. Uh, um, um, your children are awesome. He was a footballer. As well. yeah. Love them for that. Yeah. Oxytocin, yeah, so they, they promote those feelings yeah, of well being. <laughs> Oh, Ed, um, you have to... It's good if they don't drop. Right, okay. so, um, Maybe give it to Jeff. Maybe leave it, boys, for a few... Okay? Yeah, all right, you don't need to sort of, you know... Kind of Trust the hand into your Dog groin. shame me, you know. So as I was saying, they really... Dogs really help with stress. Yeah. And, no, they're very good for... Um, I found them very restorative and very calming. And that's, you know, I mean, most people tend to find that. So I think in a workplace situation, I went into a solicitor's recently and there are all these stressed out men. Are you okay with Raymond? Yeah, no, I'm fine. I think, I'm, I think Raymond is still slightly restive. I don't, think I'm, I don't think I'm showing my natural canine skills here. I think dogs smell fear. Yeah. So I dogs want to the have them place. all in the workplace. And especially, I agree, House of Commons, great idea. Okay, so number three... I think people who've experienced tough times, which I'm sure we all have, you know, whether it's, in my case, it was bereavement. I know people go through all sorts of mental health issues. 
And I think you have a baby on board badge when you're on the yeah. tube or a way of just alerting others. And you want to know. You say, look, look after me. Fragile, handle with care. I genuinely think there should be a way, and it could be in a badge, I'd be happy to make them, where you can indicate to other people, I'm, I'm kind of having a bit of a shit time at the moment. I think this is really good, by the so way. So with the death I really you have, like this. dealing with death um, might be a bit weird. You know, I'd, I, if I, I would have found that so helpful because what I experience bereavement like is that it's a bit like being a celebrity, more like specifically a reality star, that you get a few months of everyone giving you this extraordinary, mm. exceptional treatment. And then they disappear. Well, yeah, then they're like, no, you've got to be normal now. I, I really like this idea. Do you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, what do you think? Because you don't really like talking to people on public transport or in general. Uh, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I, I really think this has got something going for it. I mean, the baby on board has been a massive success, hasn't it? It has, hasn't it? Yeah, and actually, I think it proves that people are fundamentally quite decent. You I think know? they are. They want to help. They yeah. just... People are fundamentally quite decent. Yeah, and I think that's the thing is that I've found with a lot of people, they would say, oh, God, I'm sorry I didn't know. And you I, I could have just lost an election, or I could have had, couldn't I? Uh, Quite a there few is a years point ago. to which you're going to have to no, let no, okay, it go. I'm not saying four years later, but I mean, you know, I'm still going on about I, that yeah. time when. Yeah. I think I think you, it's, it's kind of got multiple uses, of, potential yeah. variants. But also, do you? You know, I think back to the Victorian times, and I don't mean in a Reese Moggian way. Um, oh, those halcyon days when children were whipped at school. But I mean in the sense that I think they didn't fear death in the way that we do because their culture was less sanitised and people died much more frequently. So they had to talk about it and people were black for ages and you thought, okay, girlfriend's not going to be swiping on Tinder for a while, I'll, I'll leave her. Or you would just... It would, it's a way of communicating to the rest of the okay, world. Okay, well, I'm, in, I'm into this. Yep. Definitely. Do you like this? I, I think like all your be, ideas. You could have an armband, you could... Oh, Ed, <laughs> so happy. But you... It's, it's just a way of indicating to people that you need... You're not quite yourself and you're fragile, you know, for the moment. Good. You like that? We do. Definitely. Right, do you want to do thank yous? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to thank Fahana Yamin, Chris Stark and Emily Chukbra. <laughs> thank you to Emily Dean and Raymond. <laughs> He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you. Mm -hmm.